0: Last Sunday, um, my mother-in-law and I, Krista was working, so my mother-in-law and I took the the girls out um, for Sunday brunch after service, and um, where we were sitting in the restaurant, it was, it was, you could see into the party room in the back, and the party room, there's a big sign on the door, it said, you know, so-and-so's baby shower, and you could just see in the room this this room filled with women and balloons and um and little baby outfits and car seats and and just all of the things you expect to see at a baby shower and and I was looking at the room and watching them have fun and unwrap gifts whatever try not to be too creepy about it but I was watching this baby shower unfold and the thought suddenly occurred to me you know what I wish someone had given us at a baby shower probably the most valuable parenting tool that we have never had access to in our lives. It's a polygraph. I feel like parenting, parents should come equipped with a polygraph. Because I have never in my life, I've been doing this for 11 years now, parenting these girls, and I still have no clue how to figure out when these people are telling me the truth. And I suspect that it's a lot less often even than I think it is. These girls are ingenious when it comes to devising ways to lie. Whether it's, I walked in the room to tuck one of my girls into bed the other night. As I opened the door, you know, I could see a little rustle in the bed. And she looked up and smiled at me. I said, are you ready to go to sleep? And she said, yeah. And I don't know what it was about what, I said, can you do me a favor? Can you just lift up your blanket for me? And she lifted up her blanket and like, all of her Shopkins and toys and Barbies were all stuffed into her. room. And as I came in the room, she just like covered it all up so that she could continue to play. And I would have no idea. I, it's just like all the time. Every single time I come across two girls fighting, I always, of course, you're going to ask the question, what happened? And I now know to not believe Anything that happens next. Because both girls will give me a story, neither of which I think is true. And you have to now all of a sudden become a Sherlock Holmes, a detective, to try and figure out the what would actually happen. And so what we've done now, we've devised this plan where we say to the girls, go into your room, sit on your bed together, and when you have the same story about what happened, come back and tell me what happened. They'll go away and they'll do that and they'll come back. And they'll tell me a story. And lately, I've started to think, I think this story's a lie. I think you lied to me and you lied to me, and then you went to your room and came up with a lie that you could both live with, and you came back and told me that lie. I don't trust my kids as far as I could throw them because here's what I know we learn to lie early, we learn to lie well, and we hang on to that skill set. If my life is any indication, for all of the rest of our lives, and and somewhere deep in how all of that functions betrays the way that we've turned our life of faith, our life of devotion to God into a life of mere religion. This This is what Jesus is addressing in this passage of scripture that we're looking at all the way through this series in Matthew chapter 23, and you can Turn there in your Bible, you know, if it's paper or device or whatever. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse, which gets started verse 16, where Jesus, in this whole text, has been essentially calling out in the Pharisees uh, a group of men in the, in the first century who were sort of self-proclaimed spiritual leaders and everyone kind of looked up to them as, as spiritual leaders. And, and yet in this passage, Jesus is calling out in them... Markers: the ways in which their sincere devotion to God has degenerated into something that, in this series, I'm calling uh, mere religion. Um, it, it, the text kind of—I had this thought this week. The text kind of comes off sounding a little bit like a Jeff Foxworthy routine. He, he was a comedian who used to do this bit called, you know, "You just might be a redneck." So, like, one of his things would be, you know, if you think that a family reunion is a great place to meet girls, you just might be a redneck. Well, this whole text is kind of Jesus doing that same thing. If, if you engage in spiritual activity in order to be admired by the people around you, you just might be living a religion instead of a devotion to God. Um, last week we talked about um, if your life of faith Consists of uh, carefully constructed rules and expectations that you foist on yourself and other people, you just might be living a religion. This week in Matthew 16 and following, Jesus would say, If your faith allows you to tell a lie, ah, uh, If your faith allows you to tell a lie while appearing to be telling the truth, you just might be living a religion. This is what he says in Matthew 23, verse 16. He says, woe to you blind guides to the Pharisees. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. Verse eighteen, you also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone who but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. Sometime in the first century, right around the time of Jesus, um, it became common practice. For Jews to engage in swearing oaths. Like basically swearing an oath if you were making a promise to another person. Swearing an oath if you were making a promise to God. Um, swearing an oath if you to just certify the truthfulness of what it is that you were saying. They kind of became a, a swear to God kind of culture. Were they just people, it became a thing that people did. And the rabbis were very concerned about it. Because the rabbis' concern was always that whatever people do, they wanted people to do it in the spirit of obedience. So they wanted people to um, essentially follow the right rules when it came to swearing oaths. So the rabbis put their heads together and they decided that there would be three markers of a valid oath. Like the question is, how can you tell... When somebody has sworn a religiously binding oath or or a religiously valid oath and when they haven't. Because the rabbis wanted people using oaths that God would recognize. And so they said they had to have one of three characteristics. Number one, you had to use the word oath or the word promise. You had to say, I swear. If you didn't say, I swear, you didn't really swear. Um, The second was that you had to somehow refer to God. Either use God's name in some way or or mention God's attributes or a description of God. In some way, your oath had to refer to God. Now, um, Jews in the first century and actually today still are not allowed to use the name of God. And so they would use substitute words like the temple. I swear by the temple. And the temple is where God lives, so it's kind of a reference to God. Or they would say, "I swear by heaven," and heaven is where God's throne is. So that was kind of a reference to God. But you somehow had to make reference to God. Or number three, and this is a, one's a bit different for us, but you had to swear by something that had been donated to God at the temple. Um, so. People used to swear by the gold of the temple and the the gold was gold that people would donate to the temple that got used to plate all of the wood paneling and to make utensils and plates and furniture and they just and they had gold in the treasury to help the poor. There was gold in the temple and all of it was donated by other people saying here's my gift to God and so you could swear by the gold of the temple because that had that met one of the rabbis criteria. Or you could swear, like the pastor says, you could swear by the sacrifice on the altar. The altar was a part of the temple itself. But the sacrifice was something that had been gifted or donated. So you could swear by the sacrifice and it would be legally binding. But the point was they were trying to help people figure out which were the really good odes. And which were the less good odes. The ones they shouldn't use and so on. And their intentions were really good. Right? They were trying to help give people guidance. So that if they were going to swear to their own truthfulness they could do it in a religiously valid way that God would recognize. And so what they were trying to do was restrict the number and the kind of oaths that people could use. But what ended up happening, maybe predictably, was the exact opposite. That instead of restricting the number of valid oaths, what they primarily did was they multiplied the number of invalid oaths. So that people who wanted to take advantage of somebody else could use an invalid oath to swear to their truthfulness and then not be obligated to do the thing they said they were going to do. So a Pharisee, some of these guys took advantage of this, a Pharisee could say to a friend, hey, I'll pick you up tomorrow at eight. And uh, the person You know, and then they just don't show up the next day. And the person says, what's the matter with you? You promised to pick me up? There's, oh no, see, I never said I promise. And Rabbi so-and-so says that unless I say I promise, then it's not a valid oath. In fact, uh, they would say in verse 16, it means nothing. In the Greek, the phrase is, it is nothing. If you swear a religiously invalid oath you don't use you don't say i swear i promise you don't mention god you don't mention the stuff donated to temple if you don't do any of those things your oath is nothing god does not recognize it as an oath which means you're no longer obligated to obey it you're no longer obligated to fulfill it to live out the thing that you said You were going to do. You were no longer obligated to be truthful. And so here's the end result of how all of this plays itself out. They defined the rules about how to swear to tell the truth properly. Identified the legal loophole in the rule. And then drove the Mack truck of their dishonesty straight through the loophole. They had figured out a way to tell a lie without sinning. Right? To tell a holy lie. To lie in a way that not even God would fault them for. Which meant that they could be dishonest. And it's Jesus calls them out on the religious stupidity of playing the rules that way. He kind of um, is calling into question the whole rule-based system of thinking about religion. Because if you're here last week, you remember me describing this process. They would, they did life with God by the rules, right? And so here's what they would do. They would say, okay, one of the 10 commandments is thou shalt not give false testimony. Thou should don't lie. Okay, well, that's a commandment. So the command is you should swear to tell the truth. But we need a rule to help us do the command well. So the rule is you have to swear to tell the truth with a religiously valid oath. And then they would write all these 73 commentaries on what constitutes a valid oath and an invalid oath. So you had a commandment that leads to a command, that leads to rules, that leads to commentary. And it's in all of this system of legalese, you know, writing precise legal definitions of what these rules are, that you identify the loopholes and then you can drive right through them and Jesus says that's not how this works he says in verse 17 you blind fools which is greater the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred verse 19 you blind men which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple, swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven, swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. This is what Jesus says. He says, says you thinking about this is entirely upside down. He says, what makes the gold of the temple sacred? The fact that it's in the temple. Therefore the temple is more sacred than the gold. What makes the gift on the altar sacred? The fact that it's being offered as a sacrifice on the altar in the temple. So the altar is greater than the sacrifice. But then he says this. What makes the temple and the altar sacred? They're sacred because the temple is the place where God lives. And the altar is used to worship God. God. So if you swear by the uh, if you swear by the temple you 're swearing by the temple you 're swearing by the gold in the temple, and you are swearing by God because God lives in the temple. If you swear by the gift on the, on the altar you 're swearing by the gift on the altar, and you're swearing by God because it is God that is worshipped at the altar. If you swear by heaven, which is another favorite, you are swearing by the throne uh of God which means you're swearing by God cuz he sits on the throne. What Jesus says is this and this is the bottom line. What Jesus says is everything you can swear by is somehow connected to God. It emerges from God. It's so every everything you could swear by simply equates to you swearing by the presence of God. You saying God knows that I'm telling the truth. And there's really no way around it because God is everywhere. God is responsible for everything. Everything emerges from God. And so every time you swear an oath, you, by definition, are only ever swearing to God. And Jesus would say, so if the only oath you can swear is to swear to God, To say God knows that I'm telling the truth. Then it probably makes sense to just tell the truth. To be known for truthfulness. And if you're going to be known for truthfulness. Then there's really not much point in swearing an oath at all. You don't need to swear to God so that people believe that what you're going to say next is true. You can just say what you're going to say. And because you're known for your truthfulness, people will just believe you. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I lost my place. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 33, he says this. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus says, how about we do away with this whole legalistic, nitpicking, hair-splitting, game-playing, rule-writing approach to obedience that allows us to figure out the legal loophole and be dishonest without breaking the rule against lying. How about we just do away with that whole system altogether? And be people who when they say yes, they mean yes. And when they say no, they mean no. People who are are known for being as good as their word. How about we just be people whose word is their bond? How about we just become people who say what they mean and mean what they say so persistently and consistently that everybody knows us to be truthful people? That's the kind of person God's inviting us to become. What's fascinating to me about this particular passage. Is that Jesus would want to illustrate the way that devotion degenerates into religion. Using among the Pharisees. Using the issue of truth telling. Knowing that we struggle as much with the truth as they ever did. That issue is as relevant to us today as it was to them because every person in this room lies all the time. In 2002, the University of Massachusetts did a study on honesty and they discovered a number of things that were fairly alarming. For example... Uh, One part of the study was introducing two strangers to each other. And in their experiment, what they discovered was that the majority of people, 60% of adults, who meet a stranger on the street will lie to that stranger within the first 10 minutes of conversation. Think about that. This is a person I don't even know who doesn't know me. And I I will... Tell them a falsehood within the first 10 minutes of conversation. It's actually worse than that. Because on average, the participants in the study lied to the stranger three times in a 10-minute conversation. Three lies in 10 minutes. The sermon is 30 minutes long, just in case anybody's doing the math. Just keep that in mind. They, They said the average person lies, tells a falsehood four times a day. Um, Or on average, people lie four times a day. You're not lying every 10 minutes all day long. That means 1,460 blatant lies we tell every single year. Now, women, you do a little better at this than the guys do. Women lie on average about three times a day. And men lie on average about six times a day. So we got to get our act together, fellas. Um, We lie to everybody. In the study, people, 85% of people confess to lying to their parents. 75% confess to lying to their friends. 72% confess to lying to their siblings. 69% confess to lying to their spouse. We lie about everything. 40% of people lie on their resume. 90%, get this statistic, 90% of people lie on their online dating profile. And the other 10% are the ones worth dating, I guess. (laughs) We just lie, we will lie about trivial things. As a part of the study, they said 30% of people will lie about whether or not they've seen the movie The Godfather. Like, how insignificant. Who cares? But it's so important that we'll lie about it, right? We lie about everything. We lie like the Pharisees do, in that we express. An intention to do something that we have no intention of actually doing. Like we, we make promises to people that we have no intention of fulfilling. Right? Yes, we should get together really soon. Let's do that. Right? Zero percent chance that we're going to get together. Right? We lie and say that we've done things that we've never done. Like this is like lying about the Godfather, which I really have seen the Godfather. I swear to God we lie about and say that we know things that we don't know, right? One of my daughters has a really hard time saying, I don't know. So she'll ask me questions, right? Like she'll say, dad, why? So there are birds sitting on the wire and they don't get electrocuted. Why is that true? Is it because, uh, Whatever, their feet don't conduct electricity. or she'll, she'll ask the question and then she'll propose her reason. And I'll say, no, that's not it at all. It's because it's both feet are on the same wire. So the current doesn't travel through their body. It just travels through the wire. And her response will be, oh yeah, I knew that. No, you didn't. You asked me because you didn't know that. And then you told me what you thought and you were wrong. And so I corrected you. Like, why do you say? I don't yell at her like that. I'm just... Being passionate. Why do you say you knew that? You didn't know that. Just say I don't know. But we don't do that. We, um, we tell half truths. To bend reality towards the way we'd like it to be perceived. I was at a meeting in Hamilton a week or two ago. I was 10 minutes late for the meeting. I walked in. I sat down. And I literally. I said to the group. "I'm Sorry about that traffic. Now. There was traffic between my house and the place we were having the meeting in Hamilton. Um, I also left my house 20 minutes late, but that didn't come up in our conversation. Um, I gave exactly the half of the truth that helped me. Right? We, uh, we lie to get things done that we need to get done or to, to bend life favorably for us. That's why we cheat on our taxes. We lie... By what we don't say. Allowing somebody to live under a misconception. That goes uncorrected by us. Because it's, because it's beneficial for them to believe that rather than the truth. We lie when we talk behind people's back. Because we're creating the impression to them. That we think of them in one way. When in reality, we've got all sorts of other issues. We lie every time we pretend to listen and to care about what's going on in somebody's life. We lie some percentage of the time when we say, I'll pray for you. We lie every time we communicate to somebody that we're good, that all's been forgiven and forgotten, but we're carrying this little seed of bitterness inside of us. We lie when we pretend to be something that we're not. When we pretend to have our lives put together uh, in a way that is not true? When we hide our vulnerability and our weaknesses and we're dishonest about our failings? I mean, not that you need to tell everybody all of the ways that you suck, but, but we lie by presenting a false front. In fact, back to that University of Massachusetts study, do you know what the most common lie is that gets told anywhere ever? The single most common lie. Whisper it to your neighbor. If you think you know what the single most common lie that anybody tells is, whisper it to your neighbor right now. Okay, you ready for it? Here's the answer. The single most common lie. I'm fine, thank you. We lie all the time. And why do we do it? We do it for exactly the same reason that the Pharisees did it. We do it to be seen in a certain way. Jesus says, everything they do, they do As a careful choreographing of their image and their reputation. And that's exactly what lying is all about. We do it to protect our our fragile ego. Because we couldn't take being exposed as inadequate somehow. Or as fraudulent. or I mean, we couldn't take being exposed as failing in some way. It's why we lie to cover up our mistakes. Uh, A couple emailed me a month ago and said, hey, you know, our wedding's coming up. We should probably get together and talk about it. And I emailed back and I said, "Uh, I have your wedding as uh, May 2018. Is that true? And she wrote back and said, 2017. I was just wrong. You know what I wrote back? All right, typo. Typo. Wasn't a typo. I thought the wrong date. And it doesn't make me a bad person. But my pride couldn't. Somehow stomach. The idea of being wrong. On something stupid and insignificant. We want. To be seen. As someone that matters. And we will bend the truth. In order to accomplish the promotion of whatever reputation it is that we want people that we want to have among other people and the way that we do it and this is at the root of what Jesus is calling out the way that we do it is we play religious games with what it means to be obedient to God we turn our sincere hearted devotion to God into this sort of rules based obedient obedience religion thing where we, we have legal and technical definitions for what it means to obey God that allow us to justify the way we drive through the loopholes. you know, In this case, with something like dishonesty and truth. We leave ourselves in a situation where we have defined obedience so carefully that I can actually disobey, and then when I'm found out, I can respond by saying, well, technically, I didn't lie because i didn't say anything so it didn't come from me the truth is always you know well technically traffic did slow me down on the way to school even though the reason i was late was because i left my house 20 minutes late we've created a conception of what it means to be obedient That allows us to defend our disobedience with the phrase, well, technically. If you are a person whose vision of obedience allows you to start sentences with, well, technically I didn't do that. You just might be living a religion. Because that's the kind of stuff that Jesus tried to sweep away. Last week we talked about this. That if you asked a Pharisee. What does a life with God look like? They would have said, well, there's 10 commandments and 613 commands and 1,200 pages of rules and then 73 volumes of commentary on the rules to help you understand the commands that allow you to obey the commandments. And if you're obedient to all of it, that's what it looks like to obey God. If you had asked Jesus, he'd say, my goodness, get rid of all that stuff. There's two things you need to know. Love God with everything you have and everything you are and love everybody else as much as you love yourself. That's it. It's all about love. And those are two radically different visions when it comes to this. Because if I allow my wife, if I, by my silence, allow my wife to believe something that isn't true, I can say to her, if she finds me out in that deception, I can say to her, well, technically I didn't lie. But what I cannot say to her is, well, technically, I was loving you with my behavior. Right? Because I wasn't loving her. Because the truth is loving and deception is not. Now, this isn't to say, and I want to be clear about this. This isn't to say that you need to say out loud everything you think in your brain is true right you don't need to share your opinion every time there's an opportunity you don't need to offer every critique and criticism that pops into your pretty little head you don't need to say out loud every single thing that's true it it also doesn't mean that you have the license To be mean in the way that you speak your truth. There's very little that irritates me more than somebody who is just rude and offensive in the way that they speak. And then they say, well, I was just telling the truth. I was just saying it like it is. No, you weren't. You were being rude and mean and unloving in the way you were using your words. And the Bible, Jesus says, the truth is loving but the truth is always motivated by love. The, the, the apostle Paul says, speak the truth in love. Let love be the motivation that produces the truth. Let love be the vehicle that carries the truth. The Apostle Paul says, the only words that should ever come out of our mouth should never tear anybody down, but should only ever always build people up so that everyone who hears everything we say is a better person for having heard our words. That's what it means to speak the truth in love. But the truth is love because I lie to protect myself and to put myself to to um, to prop up the reputation and the image that I want others to have of me. When I lie, I am at the center of all of my behavioral, all of my life choices. I've put myself in the center of my story. Love decenters me and centers. God, in the middle of my story, everything I do, I do out of love for God. God de-centers himself and puts others in the middle of his story. So if I'm living the life of devotion that God has called me to, then the center of my story is God and others, and my orientation towards them is love, and deception is never loving. When I lie, I'm at the center of my own story. And my religion, if I can call it that, is actually only about me. Friends, we have a truth problem. And behind the truth problem, we have a love problem. We have taken what Jesus has invited us into. A life of loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving everybody else as much as we love ourselves. And we've turned that into this nitpicky, hair-splitting, game-playing, legalistic, rules-based obedience project that allows us to drive the Mack truck of our disobedience through the legal loophole in the rule. Once we've gotten there, especially the ways that we do it with the truth, we have become something completely other than the person that Jesus is inviting us to be. Because the person Jesus is inviting us to become, the person that is rooted in love, is a person whose life is driven and motivated by the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for the love of God and others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, I need help with the truth. I'm thankful that we've had a time of confession already in the service. I'm thankful for the forgiveness that you pour out in our lives. I almost feel like we need a moment of confession again Just to own before you the ways that we've made ourselves the center of our story instead of you and the people you love. The ways in which we've made it about legalistic, rule-based religion rather than living a life of love and the ways in which that opens the door for us to play games with the truth in ways that in no way resemble who you are. Would you make us a people who love you so much and who love each other so much that our yes means yes and our no means no, that we are as good as our word, our word is our bond. We become people who say what they mean and mean what they say, rooted, undergirded, driven, and encased in love. Would you make us those people Starting today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.